Hi, my name is Jason Adriani, and welcome to the Blade in Chats, your skating chat based. In this podcast, we are talking with bladers and bladies from all over the world, united by a single passion, blading. Episode 58, Arlo Eisenberg. Uh, yeah, we will see. We will see what is going on. Oh, he's here. Damn. So, let's start this one. Quite excited. Damn. What's Hi. up, Arlo? How you doing? How are you? Fine, what is about you? Is camera all right? Yeah, it is. I can see you and hear you clearly. Okay, great. Man, thank great. you for being here, man. It's such an honor and, like, I'm so excited. <laughs> cool. Thanks for inviting me. No, no, man. Like, I mean, you're Arlo Eisenberg, man. Thank you for being here, man. Hey, it's great what you're doing, you know? You're sort of capturing kind of, like, history. You're putting it on to tape. I've been watching Man. some of the stuff you've been doing. It's really cool. It's a nice project you've you've done. Thank you so much. And from you, it really means a lot, man. Cool. <laughs> I cannot even put it in words. Cool. Um, well, I'm happy to be here. Great. So how's life so far? Everything's fine? Um, yeah, everything's good. Um, you know, kind of the one of the uh, inspirations, I think, for this project you're doing has been the coronavirus. You know, we've all been um, kind of locked down during this pandemic. Uh, so I should acknowledge that my parents both got the coronavirus, my, oh, my wow. mom and my stepdad. Um, and for people kind of in the area regionally or anyone that ever came to the skate park to Eisenberg's, um, my mom and my stepdad, Essie, uh, ran the park. Um, so anybody that ever checked in, you know, or, or uh, bought anything at the skate park, they would have got it usually from Essie. Um, But so they both got the coronavirus and my, they were both in the ICU. My mom was in there for about a week. She got out. She's fine. She's okay. But Essie was in extremely critical condition. He's like one of these yeah. cases that you hear about in the news. He was on a ventilator for three weeks. Um, he was sedated. He was paralyzed. I mean, we, honest to God, thought we were going to lose him. The doctor said people in Essie's condition don't get better. Um, he was basically telling us, you guys need to prepare for uh, losing him. Um, but he made it. I'm happy to report he's in rehab now. Um, he, you know, he lost over 50 pounds. He's, you know, completely yeah. emaciated. He's after being sedated for three weeks, he's, he's got to learn to talk. He's got to learn to eat. He's got to learn to swallow. He's got to learn to do everything. He's got to learn to stand up, to walk, to sit up. Um, but he's, he's been doing all that now for a couple of weeks and he's made incredible progress. So, but, so that's kind of my coronavirus uh, update. Just oh man, it's like the, probably like the, the toughest one because John Lee, which is like a videographer from London, he got yeah. it, but like he's like 30 something. So yeah. like he stayed at home for a couple of weeks and nothing really, nothing really um, happened. Like besides yeah. getting like this, this flu things like uh, coughing and, and, and all that. But like something like what happened to you, it's pretty, it could have been like pretty rough. I mean, yeah. But, but but I'm glad and I'm happy to hear that like uh, uh, the guys are doing okay and like uh, uh, your your stepdad is like is recovering well. So thank you. Glad. 
Glad, glad, and that's that's like a wonderful news, especially in this period where like uh, the things are so uncertain that like really, really, really crazy, right? Yeah, it was crazy. And you know, it, going through the process and talking to the doctors and the nurses every day, it was really strange. It's like you said, you know, you don't know what's happening or what's coming, and so almost the the answer to every question was like, well, we don't know. You know, they said if this was just a pneumonia, you know, or some other uh, affliction, we could give you sort of some, you know, guess as to what you should expect. But they're like, it's uncharted territory. So there was a lot that was unknown for sure. Yeah, definitely. And that's maybe like the the scariest part of it, isn't it? Sure. It's one. Well, it just, yeah, it's right. It's hard not knowing. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, because there and I've seen in stuff that I've read, I've seen that this is fairly typical of the experience with coronavirus, but you know, you would get a good few days where it looks like he's, you know, recovering, he's making good progress. And then out of nowhere, like the vitals would just change his blood pressures, um, uh, heart rate would drop and then it's just all bets are off. And it's like, you know what, we don't think he's going to make it. Like my, my brother, he got like a similar like experience with his um, uh, football coach yeah. Uh, he, he unfortunately couldn't make it because he understand like underestimated the, the symptoms that he had. So yeah. like uh, his brother, after like a couple of I wouldn't say a couple of weeks, but like he, my brother told me like for twelve days he was like ignoring the the signal because he was like oh it's just the flu whatever yeah. I'm fine yeah. I got like thirty eight thirty nine degrees but I'll get better tomorrow tomorrow yeah. tomorrow and then like his brother told him hey we need to go see the doctor and then. As soon as he get to the hospital, like his condition, like degrees and correct. yeah, and then unfortunately he couldn't admit it. But like here in Milan, like there were like days where like the news were saying today we had like eight hundred people passed. Yeah. Next day five hundred. The other day a thousand. So it was like a, especially the beginning of this uh, quarantine thing. It was like a war zone in here. But right now, luckily, things are getting better. So we are oh, hoping for. Goodness. Yeah, the you know the world watched Italy. You were one of the first and hardest hit. So mm. uh, I feel for you, but I'm I'm glad to hear that things are going better. Thank you, thank you so much. And uh, talking about Italy, like I suppose that you have been here in Italy uh, quite some times for for roses, right? Yeah, we went out to Monteluna a few times for sure. Man. Yeah, how was it? Did you like Italy? Yeah, I loved it. You know, and Massimo with uh, roses was our host, and he was a great host. Uh, Roses was a great company, always took really good care of us. Um, so, yeah, I, I love visiting Italy. And we would go out, you know, there was some little public skate park <laughs> that was not too far that we'd go. I mean, it was a terrible park, I'm sorry to say. No, but, no, no, no. Was, <laughs> you yeah. have to say that. <laughs> right. So if you can imagine, I mean, because this was, obviously, this was the very early days of skating. So it's not like now where everybody's got a great public park and, you know, <laughs> people knew how to design parks and all this stuff. I and mean, back then, it's like, you know, ramps with like weird transitions and like random metal ramps for no reason and rails that are either way too high or way too low. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it was, it was funny, but it was, you know, but it was interesting because we'd take these like prototypes, or whatever, take skates and just go out to this, you know, this little park and try stuff. Cool. And like the, for, for the record, like the skate parks, most of the skate parks here in Italy are still like that. Even oh, if really? like the, <laughs> the material are pretty cool or uh -huh. whatever, but yeah. like, the design of that skate park, yeah, I mean, like... Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. And, like, but yeah. with, with that being said, like, um, I was reading, like, um, a book about the, the America the other day, like, during this quarantine, like, like I read this book about Texas, and it looks, like, a pretty cool to, to live. 
I mean, like I do always had in my mind this like typical idea of Texas as a place, like kind of a rough place. But like mm-hmm. from that book, like it looks like a pretty cool place to to live, especially Houston. The the, um, the writer said a lot of good things about Houston, about like uh, uh, how many young people are in there, the possibility of work in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I don't know how it is. Um, I mean, I would imagine that the perception is is kind of the same around the world. Certainly within America, people think of Texas, you know, as the South and as a country place. You picture kind of horses and cowboys, I think when you think of Texas. Um, and it is a big state and there is a lot of that to be sure, but it's almost like anywhere you go in the world, when you have a big city, your big cities are going to be more metro- uh, metropolitan. You'll have kind of more diversity, more culture. Um, and so Dallas, uh, Houston, Austin, um, our big cities are, are no different in that respect. And it, in a lot of ways there, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think that there's a lot of nice qualities about about Texas and about the uh, the um, Dallas where I live, but I'm sure it's true of, you know, of a lot of other cities as well. But I, I you know, I was out in California for over 20 years and then I moved back to Texas about um, almost six years ago. Um, so there, for me, it's home, but there was a, enough that was attractive about coming back that, that made it worth it. And like, did you uh, start skating in, how and where did you start skating? Was it like in Texas or in California? In Texas, I moved to California to skate. I started skating in uh, probably after the summer, after my junior year of high school. So the summer after my junior year of high school. Um, so I would have been probably around uh, 15 years old, maybe, um, when I started inline skating. And that would have been maybe uh, 1989, somewhere around there, 1990, because I graduated high school in 1991. Um, And then after high school, I went to Austin to go to college for a year, basically. But by then, I was only skating all the time. Um, and it's interesting. I think, you know, because I've been seeing, you know, there's a lot of conversation lately about kind of all the different styles of skating, especially with the big wheel and the freestyle skating uh, or power skating, you know, all the different names for it. Um But, in, you know, you always find these schisms, people talking about different styles and, you know, what, what they think is the best or the most, um, uh, the, the best representation of rollerblading. Um, but certainly back then, you know, before I'd even moved to California, before aggressive skating existed, before there was any such thing as disciplines, it was just skating. And I remember going to the skate shop all the time, like buying these, you know, I'd always get the new big like Kryptonics wheels with giant cores, um, but they were fast. Uh, you know, and then as, as they start to cone and you rotate and all stuff, but the, you know, the, the smaller they get, the slower they get and the, the fatter the profile gets, the slower they get. So I'd always, I was always really stoked when I'd get to go buy new wheels. And like in Austin, I, I didn't have a car. I was skating everywhere. So I would skate from the, you know, my, my uh, dorm on campus basically, and then, you know, skate miles to the skate shop. Uh, and I loved it. I loved skating everywhere. And then when I joined, you know, I started meeting up with other people who were skating, you know, rollerblading was like becoming a thing. There was like a campus club of rollerbladers. But like, you know, we had like a whole weekly schedule, like on the weekend, go play uh, roller hockey, you know, out at the parking lot. And then there'd be like a couple of nights, of like a weeknight skate. And we'd go for a skate through downtown. Um, I just loved it. Um, and I just loved it. I spent all of my time in skates. Um, you know, I've told this story before, but like I was actually skating to my classes. And so, I'd, you know, I'd be sitting there on campus in my skates. 
um, awesome. which it, it sounds absurd. Um, it sounds like a, a, a 90s, you know, movie. Um, but, but that was my life. And so now to bring it full circle, now that we're in quarantine on lockdown, um, my daughter and I have been going out and skating a lot. Like, we'll just go skate, you know, through the city, skate around the neighborhood, go. There's a college not far from here. So we go skate on campus. And I always tell her, I'm like, babe, you don't understand. This is like my, my, like my life for a year. Like, and I used to have to run from security cops all the time. It's like, <laughs> it brought, it brings back so much memories, but I, but skating around with her just reminds me how much I enjoy just being out and skating, especially as you get older, you know, to be someone like me, I'm 46 now. Wow. Um, and you can't, it's not realistic to expect to go out and, you know, do stunts all the time. Um, that takes a toll on the body, but it's still nice to get out and skate. And I know that a lot of people are way ahead of me on the curve on this because that's why there's a whole movement. People love going out with their bigger frames and their big, bigger wheels and skating. Um, I was just talking to Josh about this the other day because uh, he's got a set of big frames and big wheels. And I'm like, because I told him, I was like, you know, I'm thinking about getting a, a setup to go skate because when I go out and skate with my daughter it's fun but I can feel how slow I'm going and you know you can feel every rock and if the pavement's yeah. not perfect it's, like, it's not that much fun skating around on aggressive skates uh, if you don't have the right setup so I told him you know I'm, I'm interested in getting a you know a big wheel setup he's like oh I've got some <laughs> he's got like I've got a setup he's like I'll, I'll send you a uh, frame and wheels I'm like cool I'm like how big are the wheels and I'm thinking he's going to say like 70 millimeter, you know, 72 millimeter. He's like, oh, 120 millimeter. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck are you, what? And he sends me a picture and there are these three giant wheels. I, I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that, but I'm sure it would be fun. It, I mean, I'm definitely into it. I want, I want to go skate. I want to get some bigger wheels for sure. Man, that's awesome. And I cannot wait to see the, the footage of you guys skating around. <laughs> I don't know if there'll be any footage of that and I don't know how much it'd be, how interesting it'd be to see, but definitely, definitely into doing it. Great. And like talking about, like, I was talking with, with oh, Josh what, is here. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, John Avran, John Julio, everybody, oh, Miguel. Oh yeah. Look at all these. I haven't even been looking yet. Damn. Joe's here too. Now I gotta, I gotta measure my comments. <laughs> don't ask me anything provocative about Joe. Okay. And then, yeah, I was talking with, with Angie, like I've done like one of these bathing chats with, with her and like, um, and, and you, to me, always, you always been like a, like a warrior somehow, like you uh -huh. were like a, a, the, um, in the flesh, you were like the, 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 the proudness of the blader because you mm -hmm. always stand up and you always fight for our rights as a blader. Mm -hmm. And like, I've learned that like even Angie, who founded Daily Bread with Jess, she, she fought for our rights as, as a blader and like yeah. how did you get in contact with with them in daily bread um well so when i was out in texas right where i was skating where i started skating before i ever went to california team rollerblade came to dallas and did a demo uh it was actually a uh like a five or ten k event you know they had a big race and like i said back then i was doing everything so i actually came out to do the race but I also knew that Team Rollerblade was there, so I, I came also to see them. Um, and so I did the 5K on my same sk on my skates, whatever my setup was. And then I also went and they had the ramp set up, and I skated the ramp uh, with Team Rollerblade. Um, you know, watched their demo and then talked to them afterwards and skated the ramp a little bit. Um, and this was a crazy setup. I mean, this was like – it was probably had a plywood – surface no coping you know it was just the the wood to wood on the deck <laughs> i don't know how they skated him and and back then the demo ramps were probably all only like 16 feet wide or something i mean 
So you not only was grinding not an option. I mean, they didn't even have coping, so no one was thinking about grinding. But also, you better make sure you're not drifting too far on your errors because there is no room for error. Um, but so anyway, so they did their demo, and it was Pat Parnell, Angie was out there, Jess, um, AJ, uh, Chris Edwards. Um, and that may have been it. I don't think Chris Mitchell was there. So I think that's, that's who was out there. Um, and so I skated around with them a little bit. And afterwards they said, you know, they said, oh, are there any skate parks here that you could take us to? And so back then the, the skate park locally was uh, Jeff Phillips Skate Park. Jeff Phillips is a famous Texas skateboarder, had a great facility out here, uh, a big indoor facility. It's a really nice skate park. Um, and so I took them out there and we skated Jeff Phillips together. Um, and it was really fun. And, you know, that was the first time I ever saw grinding on rollerblades because Chris Edwards, you know, talk about having different setups for different uh, terrain. Chris had a separate pair of skates that he brought out and they had all little wheels. Um, so you couldn't really skate, you know, vert on them or anything because they're not going to go very fast. But there were a whole but there was a whole bunch of like mini ramps, like all around the kind of perimeter of this big open street course. And so Chris put on these skates with little wheels and he'd go up and he, he was like, you know, doing front sides and back sides, like all along the, the coping on these ramps. And I was like, that's really cool. You know, first time I ever saw it. Yeah. Um, and just as a sidebar, you know, I, obviously I was familiar with Team Rollerblade vaguely, you know, because I was I consumed the media back then, whatever it was like inline magazine and like there'd be these, uh, 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 what's the guy's name that made the ski videos? Um, Bruce Benedict? Or, and who is the guy with the Mohawk plank? Whatever. But they, so the, they would release these like skate videos too sometimes. Um, and they had some clips on MTV. Um, and, you know, skating in Texas, I knew that I was pretty good. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of competition, but I was really confident. I was really, you know, I was, I was gaining in my abilities and I, I knew that I was pretty good. And then once I started seeing this other stuff on TV and I was comparing myself to what it looked like, you know, these guys out in California, what they're doing, I was like, you know what, I can hang with them. But the only person that I ever saw that I thought, you know, I'm not at his level was Chris Edwards. And so for me, that was sort of my, like my first like idol, like the person that I looked up to was like, this guy is really good. Um, and I'd like to be able to do what he can do. Um, and I never quite got there. I mean, in, in terms of what he, Chris was doing on vert, um, he was light years ahead of everybody for a long, long time. Uh, and certainly there are people that caught up and that, you know, now there are people that are great at vert. Um, but I never got to, to where Chris was on vert. And the only reason I think that I could, you know, that I, that I could lay any claim to, to success as a street skater or even compare or measure myself against Chris is not because I was ever a better athlete than he was or a better skater than he was. It's just the trick vocabulary changed and the styles changed so dramatically um, that it, I think it was more, I was better suited to kind of where street skating went um, than he was. Uh, but he was definitely someone that, that I always looked up to. But so anyway, so, so Team Rollerblade came to Dallas and for me, that was a big deal. And to see Chris skating in the flesh was a big deal. And I was always kind of intimidated by him. Um, and so I met all of them. And uh, after the skate session, you know, I'm talking to Angie and Pat and I'm like, you know, I want to do what you guys are doing. I want to, you know, I want to be able to make a living skating. How do you do that? And they're like, well, the only way you can do that is in California. I mean, if you want to make a living skating there, you have to be there because, you know, we do demos, we do shows and stuff like that. And that's all happening in California. Um, and so within a year, I guess, of that meeting, I, I would 
drop out of school and I did it. I bought, I bought a plane ticket. I moved out to California. Um, a story that I learned much later and that Angie tells is that while I, in the interim, after I'd met them and I was sort of making plans to move out to California, Angie remembered me. And when they had some shows that they needed extra talent for that they were booking, she's like, Oh, I'm going to reach out to Arlo in Texas and get him out here to do the shows. But by then I'd already moved out. So when she started looking for me, it didn't lead her to Texas. It led her to California. And so then, you know, there's a whole story in California meeting Brooke and all this stuff. And eventually getting hooked up with team rollerblade and doing the shows. Um, and that was, that's how I got out to California. Awesome, man. And yeah, it's it amazing. Awesome. <laughs> and like you were like, because you mentioned it, like you are in, I started skating in 2000. So like before that, like I've learned through like talking with people and, and, and all that, but like you are the one who like really uh, make a revolution in, in the style, in the tricks, right? Like you invented also a couple of grinds, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so in the beginning, it was kind of like a, uh, by committee, it was a real group effort. Like we would go with Chris Mitchell and uh, uh, Brooke and Corey Miller, um, Mark Shays. Like we'd all go street skate all the time around Santa Monica, Venice. Um, and we'd all be skating and just sort of trying stuff, you know? Um, and when we first started experimenting with like the sides of our boots, you know, trying to lock on the sides of our boots, um, we were all, I, in particular, I remember this one session down in Santa Monica, um, skating these, uh, these waxed, uh, curbs. They weren't really curbs. Well, yeah, no, it was two things on, because this was right on the boardwalk. So there were these kind of waxed benches that, that separated the, the, uh, the bike path from the beach, but then there were also curbs on the other side. So you could skate curbs or you could skate these kind of waxed rounded corner benches. Um, and so we were all skating the curbs. And we were all trying to, you know, lock on the side of our boot, basically doing macchios. And then I don't know if someone said it explicitly, but we were definitely trying. We're like, let's try to, you know, put the, the front foot on whatever. And so the first person technically from my experience, in my recollection, to do a soul grind was Corey Miller. He got it first. Um, and but we were all working on it there. So that was kind of workshop by committee. Um, but then, yeah, as you go, you know, each person on their own is kind of trying to envision, like, what are things that you can do on skates? I invented fast slides. Um, but an interesting story about fast slides is, you know, we took a lot of inspiration in the early days from skateboarding. Obviously, the first trick names kind of almost had skateboard names. Soul Grind was almost called a Smith Grind. Um, but fortunately, it became a Soul Grind. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's what, right. what Thank I was goodness going to it's say. A soul grind, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in the early days, we had, you know this probably is still true, right? You do half cabs and stuff like that. Um, front side and backside came from skateboarding, even though I think it's a weird thing that front sides and backsides, actually it's a trick without a name, <laughs> but that, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but so fast slides, you know, I, I didn't know enough about skateboarding to know what it's called, but like, you know, people like do these tricks, I guess it's like a, I don't know what it's called. What's it called? We just grind on the front truck, like a, Crookie? Crookie or, grind. Or yeah, maybe nose like grind, crookie grind. or something like that. Yeah, crookie, yeah, something like that. Um, but I thought that was a cool body position because for me skating, I was just trying to think like what's the weirdest position I can put my feet in. I'm trying to think like what looks cool. And you mentioned Daily Bread. I'll, I'll tell that story in a little bit how I got hooked up with them because I realized now I didn't answer that all the way. Um, but so I was thinking of skating a lot in terms of photographs, like what looks cool, like what's good content, what makes skating look interesting and cool. And so 
and we looked to skateboard. I looked to skateboard magazines a lot because I, I liked the photography and skateboard magazine. I thought, I think it's a very stylish um, sport. Uh, and so I wanted something that looked kind of like that, you know, kind of like, you know, in this position, the body, you know, going down the rail. And so for me, that's how I started working on fast slides. Um, and so I would work on it also like on bower boxes. I remember we were doing, I was, we were in New York in Flushing Meadows and they had a, like a bower box set up and I was skating with B-Love. Um, and I was doing fast slides. Uh, but I would, I would keep, cause to do a fast slice, it's a one footed front side. So, you know, I'd try, maybe try front side and then I'd go and I'd do it as a fast slide. And I was frustrated because I kept getting stuck. I would balance all the way across on one foot standing up. And I thought that was lame. Like in my <laughs> mind's eye, I wanted like this fast, like aggressive position, like sideways. And if I got stuck like, stuck like that, I thought it was absurd. It's like, it's just doing a front side with one foot. Like how dumb. <laughs> well, then of course the, the truth is that the, the most impressive fast slides would be balance. That was the right way to go. So I was not- The Aaron Feinberg one. What's that? The, the Aaron Feinberg or the Alex Brosko exactly, one. Exactly right. So that, now when you think of fast slide, I think that that's the right way to think of it. And it, that is the, I think that's more impressive. Uh, but in my mind back then, and in my mind's eye, I envisioned it as more of a sliding trick, less of a balance trick. Um, but so just an interesting little side note on that. I invented, it's weird to say invented because in a lot of ways, it's just the first person to do it. But I was the first person to do alley-oop sole and we called it alley-oop. Um, but because we had a magazine, because, you know, I was doing, you know, we would like come up with a trick and then go out and shoot it with Jess and then put it in the magazine. And so it's like, not only are we coming up with tricks, but we're also disseminating them. We're putting them out there. And we're, so we're, we're, we're not just coming up with them. We are in creating them. We're, we're putting them out there. Um, and so it's true that there were other people in other areas, probably also doing the same stuff at the same time, but they didn't have the same platform that we did to get it out there. So in a lot of ways, we were able to stay claim to tricks that other people probably were also doing. You know, the story I told about the soul grind was happening in a lot of other places at the same time. Tom Fry will tell you his story about doing soul grinds in Australia. Um, and other people have similar stories. Same thing with like Royales and Shifties, right? And all these things. A lot Once skating started happening, pockets of communities were, also, were developing tricks. And that's why, and so you end up with some sort of like conflicts between trick names, like where people are calling them different things at different areas. You've got the Farfignugan and the full tour <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but so, so I went out to California um, and eventually we were doing shows, I guess it was probably at Santa Rosa because um, you know, the Snoopy cartoon and Charlie Brown, um, it's called Peanuts. I don't know if you know. Yeah, it, yeah of course. Of course yeah. Okay. Um, the the creator of Peanuts is Charles Schultz and his daughter was Jill Schultz and she was a probably she was a she was on Team Rollerblade. Uh, really? I was going to tell a little bit more of her background, but I, I realized I don't know it well enough to say. I mean, maybe she was a figure skater, some kind of a, a skate dancer before. But so she ended up on Team Rollerblade and they started running a camp out of Charles Schultz's you know state in Santa Rosa, mm -hmm. California, um, called Camp Rollerblade. And so, you know, they had half pipes and street courses and they taught, you know, all kinds of skating. People would go out there, you know, this is before Camp Woodward, people would go out there um, and we, and then they would bring out pros and we would instruct. And it was cool. It was like, like a really, it was like a way that skaters from around the world could come together in the early days and, and get together and skate and share their knowledge and also pass it along to new people. Well, so we also did shows There were, you know, they had a, a big uh, facility, like a theater out there. And we, you know, we do shows and Jill would choreograph them and, you know, we drop in on the ramps at the same time and like do all this choreographed stuff. Um, 
And Angie backstage at one of these shows had brought Daily Bread magazine, um, this project that she'd been working on, you know, this, this uh, passion project of hers. Um, and Jess, I mean, Jess was shooting the photos, I guess, but you know, it was Angie basically alone teaching herself how to use a computer and yeah, really a labor of love. Um, and it was the coolest thing, you know, and it's the contrast, you know, looking back is so interesting because here we were doing these shows at Santa Rosa, which to my taste, wasn't the part of skating that I was interested, interested in, you know, cause these shows we're wearing basically not costumes, but we're, you know, our outfits are coordinated. We're all wearing same color shorts and like shirts and helmets and, you know, elbow pads and knee pads, whatever. Um, and even at one of these shows, I remember I mentioned that Corey Miller did the first soul grind. Well, at a different show, it's, uh, what's the theme park out there? Knott's Berry farm. We were doing these shows at Knott's Berry farm. This was one of my first paid gigs for rollerblade. Um, and Corey, it was also Corey's first paid And so we were doing these show, shows for Rollerblade. And after the shows, uh, they offered they offered us contracts, basically retainer. This is what I'd moved out to California for. It's like, it's not just getting paid to do a show and then thank you very much and go cash your check. It's a monthly retainer. Every month you get a check from Rollerblade, you are officially on the team. And no matter what you do outside of that, you know, you can also get booked for shows and all this other stuff, but you're going to get a check every month from Rollerblade and you are officially on the team. Uh, you know, you're, jo- you're joining the ranks of Chris Edwards and Pat Parnell and, you know, and Angie and all these guys. Um, and for me, that was like, that was the ultimate goal. But so we got offered these contracts at this show and Corey got offered the contract and Jill said, I want to offer you a contract because Jill, I guess, was running Team Rollerblade. And she said, uh, but you're, you know, we have some concerns about kind of your, your style. Because back then I had a shaved head, I had the sideburns, you know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was coming from this sort of street background which didn't even really exist yet in rollerblading, but I kind of had this vision for it based, based largely on skateboarding. But this is kind of the skating I was doing that I was interested in. Um, and that's and what they, defined street skating in a way. I mean, like, well, that's, what learned- that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm leading up to. So, so they said, you know, we, we want to offer you a contract, but we have some misgivings about your kind of your aesthetic, your style, your look. They said, so if you, if you cut your sideburns, basically, I mean, it sounds like, it, it almost doesn't sound real the, the way that this is happening, but it really did happen something like this. And they said, basically, if you cut your sideburns, you know, if you can clean up your image a little bit, then we'd love to have you on the team. And so here I am faced with this choice, you know, between kind of this authentic vision for rollerblading, which I, I love and I believe in, and here this dream that I, you know, that I've been working toward is being offered to me, but it's sort of at the expense of the vision that I, that I believe in. Um, and so I turned them down. I did not sign a, a contract with rollerblade. Um, which was really tough to do. That was a tough decision, but I, I thought maybe there would be a future in this other thing. And then when Angie came out with the magazine, that was the first glimpse of the idea that this could be real. This other thing we were there doing these shows for Santa Rosa, but Angie had this magazine and it had on the cover, Chris Edwards, uh, doing a handrail with no pads on, no helmet on. I mean, maybe he had knee pads on, but no helmet on. Um, it was raw. It was gritty. The images were in black and white. People were sweaty. Um, and it was all about street skating. And so here now, Angie had provided, basically created the space for this new vision for rollerblading. And it, there's no question that's, I wanted to be a part of that. I mean, I'd already turned down team rollerblade. So this is the thing I wanted to hitch myself to. I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and so I did, I moved to the Laguna beach. I was basically living with Angie and Jess. They were married at the time. Um, and I just went, uh, dove in head first and like contributed 
as much as I could. I, I wrote for the magazine. I went out and skated and got photos for the magazine. Um, I drew illustrations for the magazine. I mean, for, for us, we were trying to create a culture around skating and all that stuff was important, like the trick vocabulary, the way we talked about skating, um, the traveling, the community, like trying to bring in a, for Angie, this was real important, you know, showing images of skaters from not just from around the US, but from around the world. And before any of us, she started going to, you know, to Switzerland, to Lausanne and going to these international events. And so for, that was a, a big driving thing for Angie and to her credit to sort of building this international network community of skaters, which to this day you still see in skating, you know, the, this international community. And it, I, think it, I think Angie deserves a lot of credit for having that vision for building that community from the very beginning. Man, that, that was what that, I mean, that's why when I've done like the blading chat with her, I was like so pumped. I mean, like it was like melted God, like God, like she was like telling me all of these stories and like the the, the thing that she fought for our like uh, image as, as yeah. a blader because she told me like Team Rollbait also with her, they wanted to uh, focus more into the recreational part yeah. besides the, the, the bird or, or the streets. And like she was fired like four times yeah. from the company and all that. And like that's why to me, you and 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 Angie are like the 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 real like in the flesh, the the the, the proudness of the blader. So thank you guys for what you've done. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for interviewing Angie, because you know, I I get a platform a lot. I get to tell my story. And you know, I talk about moving out to California and meeting up with Team Rollerblade. But so I'm never telling the part about before I got there. I'm never telling the stories about Team Rollerblade and the battles Angie was having with Team Rollerblade, the battles that were mm. already going on before I ever got there. Um, so you're absolutely right. And when I found when I found Angie, when we hooked up um, and started collaborating on Daily Bread and a lot of other things, I mean, in her, I really had found a kindred spirit. Um, and we connected really deeply and had a sh real shared uh, vision for for rollerblading and what it could be. And I think that there was a, I, th I think that a lot of really uh, great things kind of came out of that relationship. Um, and Jess mm -hmm. also, Jess, of course, was there and he was, you know, without, without his vision and his lens, you know, there's no story to tell. I mean, you, you can only write about, rollerblading is a visual story. It's about seeing what people are doing, seeing the tricks. And so the fact that he documented it and captured it all, I mean, it was a really, it was a really great team there uh, early in the beginning. I think, I think that uh, things worked out. You, you know what, like, all the things that happened, like, I've always been, like, super, I wouldn't say obsessed, but, like, super fascinated by Daily Bread. And that is yeah. why, like, one of the, the the main people that I wanted to, in, to interview on these blading chats were, was, like, Angie. But, like, one day I was reading, like, during this quarantine, one of the Daily Breads, and I saw the picture from Jess, from Brian Kanoski, and for some reason I texted Brian, and, yeah. to, and, and I told him, man, like, thank you so much for all of these images that you brought like into into the into those magazine yeah. because they really shaped my 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 teenage years because yeah. I was like dreaming to skating those spots in California and Jess did the same same thing with his, with his lens too and yeah. uh, John from the other day we were talking and he told me that Jess is down to do one of these blading chats so maybe next week oh, I'm good. going to have Jess D here yeah that'd be great yeah that'd be great um, like I said you know the, the the people that were around at the very beginning people like Jess people like Angie. I mean, they have great stories to tell and they were very influential in the development of the sport. And, you know, Definitely. so I, I took a lot of pride in sort of writing a lot for Daily Bread and I became essentially the editor for Daily Bread and I provided a lot of written content. Um, but the percentage of people that read those magazines is pretty small compared to the people, percentage of people that are looking at the images. Um, and however many people read the stories, 
everybody that looked at the magazines was there to look at the photos. So the photographers and the videographers were really doing the, the heavy lifting for kind of building the culture and the, uh, the community of rollerblading. So Jess and uh, Brian and Johnny, when he came along, I mean, all these Damn people and, and with the, the videographers, once, you know, they started putting out their stuff. I mean, but that is where you really start seeing, you know, the, the shaping of the, the culture of skating. Man, that's amazing. And what about, but I do, I'm afraid that like this one is going to be like a super long uh, story, but what about Senate? How did Senate start it? And like, because uh, I was like uh, watching a, a YouTube video earlier and like, uh, was like you and Brian Knoskin and a bunch of other people creating Senate, isn't it? Or? Um, I'm, I'm reading Josh's note. Yes, RIP uh, Johnny. Uh, yeah. Johnny passed away recently. Um, Senate. So let me, I'll tell you, I'll just sort of, I'll keep Senate going kind of in the, the, the thread that we've started. But so Angie and I, I said, we're, you know, you know, uh, linked in a lot of ways, kind of intellectually and spiritually. Um, but Senate would eventually cause kind of like a little rift between us um, because, you know, we had this sort of this like street ideal uh, for, for rollerblading, sort of like something built by the people, for the people, you know, coming from the streets because uh, we, we were resisting kind of this top-down approach that was coming from uh, Rollerblade and kind of the, the corporate um, sponsors. Um, but so then with Senate, and Senate quickly became very successful. And so I became kind of the corporate sponsor. Senate became the thing that we were always fighting against with Daily Bread. And even though Senate should have been different because it was made by skaters and, you know, we were, it had a more, a more authentic or a more appropriate vision for street skating or for the kind of skating we were doing. It still didn't change the fact that Senate became a very big company with probably outsized influence um, and a lot of money. And so it started to create some tension between the goals of Daily Bread and the goals that I had at Senate. And since I was running both, essentially, I know that it, it, I think it made Angie uncomfortable in some ways and probably rightfully so. Um, and so it probably created a little bit of, of tension between us. Um, but so the way that Senate started was really, it started with Brooke and I, um, or start with Brooke and me, sorry, start with Brooke and me. Um, and I've told the story a lot about how Brooke took me under his wing. Brooke came out from New Zealand to California the year before I came out from Texas. So all the things that I wanted to do and that I was trying to do, he'd already done just the year before. So he came out, he hooked up with Team Rollerblade, he started doing shows. And then when I met, him in Venice, um, just skating on the boardwalk um, and jumping barrels, uh, he took me under his wing and he started hooking me up with those people also. Um, but so Brooke, you know, I mentioned that how Angie and I were, you know, uh, had, had a lot of the same ideas and, and were very um, uh, intellectually aligned. Well, same for Brooke and I. And so Angie and I, our project was Daily Bread. Well, for Brooke and I, our project became Senate. Um, and it was born of similar frustration, you know, whereas Angie, you know, we were frustrated kind of like with the image that was being portrayed of rollerblading through the kind of the, the corporate and recreational entities. So we wanted to portray something that represented what we, how we saw skating. Same thing with uh, Senate. Brooke and I were like frustrated with the way the companies, the products they were providing and the way that they were producing ads, you know? So with Daily Bread, we were producing the editorial content, but with Senate, we wanted to produce the uh, the corporate commercial content. We want to make ads for skaters. We want to make products for skaters. 
Um, and we were testing products at the time for like Kryptonics was testing little wheels. Um, Hyper was testing little wheels. Uh, Hyper had, you know, what would become midgets and Kryptonics had what would become little rocks. Uh, but again, just like Team Rollerblade, it's like these people were always sort of afraid to commit to skating all the way. So the midgets and little rocks, they, you know, they wanted to keep them so big enough that you could roll on them if you needed to and just soft enough that you could roll them if you needed to. And I have little feet. And so trying to skate on those little wheels on those frames back then, I'd never got enough room to grind. They would always stick or, you know, I, it wasn't working for me. Um, and I had a friend who was a skateboarder who I grew up with in Texas, Andrew. Um, and he said to me, he's like, why don't you put skateboard wheels in the middle? You know, those are little and hard. Um, and I worked at a skate shop at the time. A, it was a tennis shoe store that had a little rollerblading skateboard shop inside of it. It was just to rent rollerblades. But so we sold skateboard stuff. And so I looked through all the skateboard wheels and I found these little wheels that were most skateboard wheels were too fat to fit in frames, but I found some that had a narrow enough profile that I could get them in. I think they're really? little, little devil wheels or something like that. Yeah. And so I put those in and it was beautiful. You know, they're hundred a, um, they're, they're small, hard. And now for the first time I'm like grinding, like without hesitation, like I can jump on curbs, I can jump on rails. I don't have to worry about sticking. And for me, it was a revelation. Um, and so with Senate, we went to make those basically we hooked up with hyper who was, so hyper wouldn't produce for rollerbladers. They wouldn't produce the little hard wheels we wanted, but they already for skateboard companies were making skateboard wheels. So we just said, okay, just let us buy some skateboard wheels that you already make, and we'll put, we'll print our own graphics on them. And we'll sell those to rollerbladers, and those were the C notes and the bribes, the first uh, anti rocker wheels. Um, and so that was sort of how Senate was born. And the reason we called it Senate was, you know, again, this whole notion. There's always this sort of this um, we're rebelling against kind of this corporate influence in skating, but we. But we also were kind of like aware of the game. Like, it's like we didn't want to, it's like we knew we were, we were about to become one of those corporations. So we didn't want to try and like gloss over, like try to be like hard, you know, hardcore, cool company. It's like, let's just acknowledge what we are. Let's acknowledge kind of the whole scam that's going on here. And let's try and come up with the most uh, corrupt name we can think of. And so we're thinking of like, you know, Congress, like we're trying to think of names like that have to do with government, you know, like uh, senators, whatever. And Brooke came up, it was probably Brooke came up with the Senate. Like he wanted to be called the Senate, which is cool for him. It was always, he thought it was important to be called the Senate. But I think we ended up just going with Senate. Every once in a while, Brooke would kind of make a push and like he put out something that said the Senate, but the name was Senate. Um, and so that's how, that's how the company started. And then, so Mark Heineken was working for a distribution company in Amsterdam, in Holland, uh, called Rodolfo's, I think it was. Um, and they were selling skate equipment. So Mark already had like his foot in the business world. He had a pretty good business sense. And so immediately Brooke and I were aware of our own shortcomings. It's like, we had a lot of good ideas as skaters. We were both really creative and could make good fun ads. Um, but we needed some help on the business side. So we recruited Mark and he, he signed on. Um, and then as we started doing Senate, we, we brought in a couple of other people that we thought could help. Um, Aaron Spawn, who had the house where we all lived, uh, sort of by LAX airport. These were Man. old school roller skaters who had a half pipe in their backyard. Um, and then they started recruiting rollerbladers to live in this house and to fill up these rooms in this house. And so this old, old school, uh, Venice beach, LA, Southern California roller skating spot started to turn into the, you know, ground central for rollerblading. Um, and then when we started having the NIST competitions, you know, people would come from all over the world, the, got the skater from Japan, from Australia, from New Zealand, and they're all crashing at this house in Westchester, LA, uh, called Spawn Ranch after Aaron Spawn. 
Um, and it was a scene. I mean, you would walk out in the morning and, you know, sprawled out on the ramps, people from it's like just just international mess of bodies all over the ramps, under the ramps, on the ramps, all over Man. the living room. I mean, just full of skaters from all over the world. Really cool. Um, but so so we brought Aaron Spawn in, uh, the you know, the guy at the head of Spawn Ranch, because um, he was older than us. We thought that he had some sense, you know, he, he might be a good influence. And he was also building ramps at the time. And we also brought in Brian Konoski. Um, Brian Konoski was much younger than the rest of us. Um, and there was a lot of controversy about bringing him in. But, you know, I said that the first product we made was the anti-rocker wheels, but we also made grind plates. Was one that, you know, the first two things that aggressive skaters needed that were unique to aggressive skating that no corporate uh, manufacturer was making for skaters were anti-rocker wheels and grind plates. And so Brian's dad had a, a machine shop and or maybe he had the right machine tools in his garage, one or the other, or maybe some combination of both. But so they started making grind plates in Brian's father's garage. And so the first products we made, we were getting the anti-record wheels from Hyper, and we were getting the grind plates from Brian. And I thought, let's bring Brian in. Um, it wouldn't happen until later that Brian would start to become one of the preeminent photographers in rollerblading. And that was because of, you know, the opportunities that Senate gave him. He, he started making, we all started making good money from Senate. Brian started making good money from Senate. He invested in photography in his equipment and he really put time into it. And, you know, to Brian's credit, and there's a lot of stories like this. He, he developed skills through his, you know, his opportunities in rollerblading that he was able to translate into a really good career outside of rollerblading. And it, it's, it's because it's on the one hand, it's because of the opportunities that were afforded him, but also because of the hard work that he put in. So, uh, you know, so I've always been really proud of uh, and had a lot of respect for like people like Brian and what they've been able to accomplish um, outside of rollerblading. Man, and like the, the, the legacy of Senate, like I, as I said, started in 2000, but like before that, like in 1997, 1998, here in Milan, there were like people talking about Senate all the time. Like I remember friends of mine, like people like older than I, like yeah. two, three years old, older than I, they were talking about, oh man, I'm gonna buy those Senate jeans. They yeah. are selling those Senate hoodie in, in, in the shop. So th that name always yeah. like um, uh, sticky here in my mind. And I started, when I started skating, like the very first uh, skate that I had was a Salomon ST90. And there were like the Aaron Feinberg Senate wheels on yeah. it. Yeah. So it was like a, a circle, like kind of a close. And right now talking with you, man, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, you know, I talk a lot about the first products that we made, the anti-rocker wheels, anti-rocker wheels and the grind plates. But really the main thing that we were exporting, that we were selling was the image, was the image of Senate, was the image of rollerblading, was the image of this sort of counterculture, anti-authority uh, uh, thing that you could be a part of. Um, and, and, and that, that would, was... And it was, and that's, that was what Brooke and I were, that's what Brooke and I brought to it. That's what we were doing. That was the original vision behind Senate. And we had products that we, that were kind of the, the vessels for getting that idea out there. Um, and that gave people an opportunity to buy into the idea and the ideology, but the Senate was a big idea first more than anything else. No. And you know, one no. of the things I only learned to appreciate this much later in life um, because one of the things that I hear a lot, you know, there are people that were influenced by what we did in the early days, you know, that picked up skating and skating was a big influence in their life and they're grateful for it. And they always tell us, they say, thank you for giving me skating. You know, it, it changed my life. Um, but I also hear from a lot of people, they'll say things like, um, you changed the way I look at the world or you let me know that it's okay 
to look at things differently or to be different or to have a different um, outlook. Um, and I never fully appreciate what that meant because I took for granted, you know, I grew up in Dallas with liberal parents. Um, I went to an arts high school. So from an early age, I was around other artists. We had weird hairdos. Um, the first time I cut horns in my hair was not in California when I was a skater. It was when I was going to school at Texas in Austin. Um, so from an early age, I was, I, I, you know, and I was already into like alternative music and, you know, like, and I was into skateboarding. Like I was in, in, into a lot of things that sort of celebrated, encouraged kind of this counterculture um, alternative mentality. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I took it for granted that this is how young people are, that this is how people think. Um, and I never fully appreciate that there are a lot of people that don't get that opportunity. And so for us, what we were doing with Senate, what we were doing with skating and some of the things that we were putting out there was for them, their first exposure or their first inkling that there was a bigger world out there, that it was not even that it was okay, but that it was possible to question things. And that's, that was profound for people and hearing people come back and say, you know, that we, or that I had that impact on them is real, is really moving almost more than anything. I, I take a lot of pride um, in hearing that. Man, like in, here in Milano, all the people, when I started skating, like there were like, of course, older people and they were all the time talking about you in Lausanne when they meet you and all that. And like late, uh, earlier this, this morning, I texted all of them. And I was like, oh, guys, I'm going live with Arla. And they're like, oh, yeah. no way, man. He's a legend. Please say hi to him. And because you really influenced and had the impact on uh, a lot of people's lives, in my opinion. And from what I've learned and like also to me, because as I said, like, um, Uh, what do you believe in or cue the top was like uh, the videos that I was watching when I started skating. So man, yeah. that was like, that was super. I mean, I don't know what to say, man. It's amazing. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, since you mentioned what do you believe in, you know, I saw Josh's interview. You're supposed to ask me how that, how the idea for that came up. <laughs> exactly. here. I was like, I do have like, I'm afraid that like, just because these Instagram lives, they take only one hour. I'm afraid that like uh, the, the questions I have, there are like millions of questions. Okay. So I'm afraid that like, I'm, I need to, to, to bother you another time to make like a part two of this yeah, interview. Yeah, you have to do a part two. Man, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like it's, it's really cool. And, but so, yeah, I mean, let, let's go with that topic because I think Josh is here. And uh, yeah, so, yeah maybe. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you the story real quick. Are we at an hour already? Uh, no, like we, when it's going to be an hour, there will be like a two minutes counter. So we're oh, okay, still good. Okay. So let me tell you a story about, uh, about what you believe in. And I don't, honestly, I don't remember how it came about. So I don't, I'm not sure what story Josh is referencing, but I think I know the story he's trying to tell or that he wants me to tell. So I never, I, I have a, you know, I have a side project for my art now I do. It's called drug receipts. And I, you know, I draw drugs and stuff. And I put them on receipts and all this stuff. Um, so it's got a lot of like drug references and a lot of drug imagery, but I'm not a big drug guy. I don't do a lot of drugs and I never have. And before probably, until I was like, maybe, I'm not sure if I'll get my age right. I don't know if I was already in my 30s or maybe I was 27 or something, but I never even tried a drug. I didn't really drink alcohol through high school. I started drinking in college. And then once I started skating, you know, um, I probably drank more socially, but I was never big into like doing drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. Um, and I have tried drugs now. I'm 46 years old. I, you know, I've tried a lot of different drugs. Um, but again, it's not because I tried it later in life. It's never been something that I, Uh, leaned on or that I've got any particular attachment to. I enjoy them as, 
I think that the, it, there's interesting things that can be experienced, um, but whatever. But so when I was maybe 27 years old, and again, I could be getting the ages wrong. Um, Joe and Josh were not like me. They drank and <laughs> did stuff all the time, right? Um, and I was really close with them. Um, and they used to always say, you know, Arlo, come, you know, do drugs with us or whatever. And it's like ecstasy was the big one. Then they're like, you know, do ecstasy with us. And I was like, always like, you know, I'm good. I'm good. And so finally one night, um, uh, I was living in Long Beach at the time and they were much further South. Uh, what do you call where they lived? Elisa Viejo, something like that. Um, and, uh, and they, I get a call from Joe. And Josh, and they're like, uh, "We're gonna come pick you up tonight and bring you over here, and you're gonna do ecstasy with us." I'm like, "Come on!" And like, "No, you need to do it. Tonight's the night." <laughs> I mean, like, peer pressure 101, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, and they're like, "You don't have to drive out here. You don't have to do anything. We're gonna come pick you up. All you have to do is come over here." And I'm like, "Are we gonna like go out to a club?" You know, I'm thinking drugs, like that. You go out and you go to a club or something. They're like, "No, no. For your first time, you're just gonna want to sit here. We'll watch skate videos." And you'll take your shoes off and you'll feel the carpet and it'll be the best thing in your life. Trust us. Um, and so I'm like, all right, whatever. Okay, let's do it. And so they came out, drove out to Long Beach to pick me up. Uh, Joe got pulled over on the way. So they got a ticket on their way over <laughs> picking me up um, and then drove me back out there. And sure enough, you know, I, I, they gave me the ecstasy. Um, we waited like an hour and, you know, this is typical. I think of most drug experiences, nothing was happening. I'm like, and I didn't know what to expect. I'm like, nothing's happening. And so maybe we did another dose or whatever you call it. Um, and we're watching skate videos and this, I think is what Josh is getting at. So skate video, we were watching when I, certainly for me, when like I started to like peak and was like feeling the effects of the ecstasy, um, what we were watching espionage, um, because I always say, like in videos ever since, and I would always tell people, and this is kind of like a, a wink or a nod to Joe and Josh, but I always say E is for espionage, because we were on ecstasy, but we were watching espionage. Um, and espionage, and I don't even really remember this video other than watching it, but I remember at the time, and this is what drugs do to you, you know, makes things seem so profound, but it had like a section with Josh and Champion, like had a shared section in it together. And this was a strange time in rollerblading. This was like Josh caught him like kind of like in between phases. It's like kind of hip hop, uh, kind of rock, you know, maybe had jerseys, kind of baggy pants. Um, Champion was kind of punk, kind of hip hop, you know, wearing his Misfits shirt, had his glasses. But there was something really unique and um, different about that section with Josh and Champion. I felt like it captured like this perfect um, time capsule of rollerblading. Uh, where it didn't look like it was just completely derivative of skateboarding. It didn't, it started to look like it was something new and it didn't just look like it was like sketchy or um, absurd, kind of like the early days of rollerblading. It wasn't just big jeans and chain wallets and people with bad landings and bad approaches. Um, it started to look solid, like a real sport. And it didn't just look like skateboarding. It started to look like something unique and something new and different, something that could uniquely be identified as rollerblading. And that always really stuck with me. For some reason, I always really loved that section in that video, Espionage, Josh and Champion. Um, well, right now we have the two minutes. Two minutes, okay. And so Josh <laughs> might be saying that was the inspiration for what you believe in. Maybe that's when I thought I should make a video. And maybe that's true. I just, my memory is not good enough to, to recall. 
Um, but so that's the story of my first drug experience <laughs> at the hands of Joe and Josh and and uh, watching espionage. John Avram just said like he has no idea about what you were talking about. It's and true. <laughs> trust me. It's true. At least it's my emotional that's, truth. That, that's amazing. Arlo, shall we do like this? Shall we settle down like for another time for like the part two? Because I mean, I don't want to bother you. You froze right first. there at the critical. T- Say that again. Sorry. Uh, no, no. I mean, like, I was like um, asking you, like, if um, I, I don't want to bother you, but like, if you wanted to, maybe on, on the next day we can reschedule another like uh, uh, blading chat with you and like to make it like a part two because I really would like to ask you like other questions about I don't know the ASA, the the, the mind game, the Dakota video, and all that. And uh, yeah, I really absolutely. would love to. Yeah, let let's do a part two for sure. There's a lot of stuff we can still get to. Man, that's amazing. So Arlo, thank you so much for your time. It has been like a tremendous honor having you here, sharing out, sharing with us all of these amazing stories. And uh, I'm looking forward for the for the part two. All right, boss. Appreciate it. I'm appreciating all the content you're putting out. Thanks for what you're doing, Jason. Keep no, up. No, no. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. <laughs> peace. All right. Peace. Bye bye. Bye. Yes. Hi. What's up? What's up, Arlo? What's up, Jason? Part two, how's life? Everything's fine? Yeah, I'm definitely feeling like like overexposed lately. I, feel like <laughs> I just did a long one with one the other day. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm sure people are getting sick of listening to me talk, but we'll do it. We'll try and give them something new here. Awesome. All right. thank, thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you for your time. Uh, I know, how, how was it, the, the one with Justin? What, was it a good one? Yeah, it was great. It ended, it ended up being three parts. So, you know, as Damn. you know, I can talk for a long time. So it just got longer and longer. And I feel like it's always like, you know, I've been around for a long time and I feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Um, I just, you know, I guess people can choose to consume it however they want. So if, if it's too much, they can always tune out. Uh, for me, so, well, it was like, it- <laughs> for me, like it, it won't be too much for me, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. But also I had a lot of connectivity issues. Um, the, we kept losing the feed. Um, so I'm, oh. I came downstairs to try a different location. Hopefully this will, will be good for us. No, we're now I can see you and hear you clearly. So it's perfect. Great. Great. Awesome. And I heard you say that Joe was here. He always likes to come on to make sure that I don't get out of line. <laughs> yeah, he, he's had like... real, he had some real objections to some of the stories I told last time. <laughs> but they're going to do their own podcast. And we'll be able to hash all that out. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so, like, how's your parents? Like, is SE like recovered well right now? So today is Friday. So Monday of this week, he got discharged from the rehab. They, they okay. finally got to go home. So after seventy days in hospitals, um, he finally got to go back home and be with his wife, my mom. Uh, so and. You know, when he went into rehab uh, a month ago, like 35 days ago, when he went into rehab, he went in in a wheelchair. He could barely hold himself up. He couldn't sit up. He could barely hold his own neck up, um, couldn't raise his arms yet to eat by himself, uh, was barely speaking. Uh, but by the time he left, you know, on Monday, he walked out, you know, on his own two feet. He was using a little cane, but he was walking. I mean, he's he's lost a lot of weight, so he's really skinny, but he's, you know, He's getting it back. He's walking, he's talking, he's eating. Um, so we're really happy to report uh, that, that he's home and that he's healthy. 
man that's that, that's amazing and it's a it's a proper like uh, amazing news even if like the times right now especially in america are quite rough within like all of those uh, uh yeah. things into the streets which is like um something that, like here in italy we are like far away to understand it because of course yeah. we do have like people who are racist in here in here in this country but like i, I do believe like we as italian can like um uh, barely understand what is going yeah. on and like why the people are that uh, uh, angry and like why they're protesting in the street which in my opinion it, it's, it's a pretty good idea and like they have like the i'm totally um 100 like uh, on their side because yeah i mean yeah. from what i've learned from what i've seen into the news and all that it's pretty it's pretty well, shit. yeah it, it, it has been you know these have been really trying times but it looks like there is an opportunity here for us to come out of this and really have an opportunity to grow and to you know i think america has an opportunity here or, or not just an opportunity but this is a moment we are real we, we where we are really taking a hard look at ourselves and sort of confronting some really ugly truths about our history and about our present um and so you know the first step toward progress is kind of recognizing your problems um and so now we have the opportunity to address them so I, i'm hopeful that you know as we get through this um we'll be able to do that but there's a lot of positive signs i mean for all the you know all the the bad things that you see there's also a lot of really good signs that you know that people are going to be constructive and and work together to to build to make this a a better version of ourselves true and uh, i've seen like the other day from like what you're saying like a video of uh, a bunch of protesters like protecting a cop who was like divided by his right. unit or like people uh, going into the street helping the the shop owner to you know put like the woods on their on their windows and all that so it's really good yeah. to see the like protester like they're not the thing that you can see on on the news going around to the city destroying people's property and all that like it's it's really good to see that like there are protesters who want to protest but like in in a proper way in a good way correct and you know it, the point has been made uh, many times already that there you know there's a difference between people who are protesting and people who are looting that you know there will always be people who are opportunistic and who kind of take advantage of uh, instability to try and you know line their own pockets or whatever um but that's different than the people who you know are, are protesting and even if the protests get sort of aggressive or confrontational it doesn't mean that they're in the wrong uh but they there is something uh motivating kind of that anger which is different than what motivates people who only seek to um to profit or to take it or to exploit the situation and and even then well whatever i don't want to get too far into that but but yeah and you know there is a difference also between because you mentioned the people that were protecting the police officer um you know by and large most people are decent um and most people want to help you know kind of their fellow man um the the real problem with american what's being addressed right now is kind of the the systemic racism the things that are kind of built into um our society and into our institutions that have been disadvantageous for people of color um and so we have a lot of correcting to do to to kind of help bring uh people that have been historically been oppressed help them kind of bring them back uh up to a level playing field because they they have been there have been a lot of things institutional things which have been working against them for a long time and and those are the real things that are being addressed right now it's not necessarily just about you know if your neighbor you know 
is racist or whatever. That that is part of the problem, but it's the real institutional things that need to be addressed. We need, sure. you know, reforming the justice system and things like that, and, and uh, police procedures and all those things. True, true. Totally agree with you. Yeah. And um, okay, so like uh, we left our chat like uh, uh, the last time talking about like <laughs> what do you believe in, and um, I was wondering to ask you like uh, what. Um, what was the idea behind it? Like, why did you end up like uh, writing down that script, and why did you uh, choose those those people to be part of that video? Um, you know, it's a good question. How did what do you believe in come about? I, I have a feeling. <laughs> I, I don't know, honestly. I can't remember anymore. I know that the, <laughs> I know that the three key people, obviously, in the beginning were Joe and myself. And also Shane Coburn, but between the three of us, I don't remember whose idea it was. Maybe I had an idea I wanted to do a video. Maybe Joe was pushing me to do a video, or maybe Shane said, "Hey, you guys want to?" Do I don't really remember. But once the process started, um, you know, I I had an idea for you know I that I wanted to do something different, that I wanted it to have a script and kind of a storyline that that ran through it. Um, and then as far as the skaters, uh, you know, I think Joe and I kind of worked on the people we'd like to have. Like we wanted, obviously there were kind of people that were FP related that we wanted to have in it. Um, we wanted to have Richard. The idea was that the first section would be a typical FP Joe production. So the, all the other sections I worked with Joe on, you know, I sat there and helped edit. Um, and but Richard's was just Joe. We wanted it to look like an FP section. His is the only one that's in color and then the rest of them go into black and white. Um, and it was supposed to be an extension of uh, uh, Higher Power, which was a video that, an FP video that Joe had released, um, which I did the cover artwork for Higher Power and I put a little white rabbit hidden in the cover art. And then at the beginning of, um, what you believe in, we have Shima uh, fast forwarding the end of that video, Higher Power, to get to a, a secret section that we, you know, that we alleged was in the video that I think became then was What Do You Believe In? So, so there was some tie in there. But so then skaters like Aaron Feinberg, I think I would have liked to have had more of Aaron because he was, you know, he was hanging out with Joe a lot. He was part of the FP crew. Um, but he had a lot of other obligations. He wasn't really available. So, you know, we had a clip where they all come back in and, you know, whatever. We got a clip from Aaron. Um, and Josh, Josh has told the story, but, you know, Josh was, hadn't been skating a lot. He was recovering from his uh, injuries. Um, but he was living with Joe and, you know, we were all good friends. So I, I wrote like kind of a small part for Josh to be in the video, just kind of like as an extra, basically. Um, but every time we'd go out and skate, Josh would come to all the sessions and he was skating and he was skating a lot and we were getting a lot of footage, um, which by the way, and uh, the other skaters, it, I know that this is the lament, the, a familiar lament for every uh, videographer, but you know, it's difficult. It can be difficult working with skaters because they don't get up early. They're never on time. They don't all, you know, they're not always motivated. And so if you're like kind of working on a schedule and you've got deadlines, and you're trying to accumulate footage. It can be really frustrating when trying to corral skaters. Um, but Josh was always there. I mean, it helped also that he already lived with Joe. So anytime we went out, Josh just came out with us. 
Um, but he was really, really motivated um, to the extent that I had to rewrite the script to create basically a section for Josh. And then he had so much footage. And then so we turned it into this kind of this concept where we'd have the three different sections because Josh, you know, he is famous for kind of going through these different phases, these well defined and articulated phases, you know, rock, his rock phase, his kind of Jim Morrison phase, you know, and his hip hop Wu-Tang phase. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of play for the different versions of Josh and how each one could be authentic, but they were all clearly different. Um, and then of course, you know, so this thing that was, you know, that we, that was sort of spontaneous and that we had to reimagine on the fly became kind of one of the iconic moments of the video, you know, this epic section of Josh. So that, that was really cool kind of how that all worked out. And then of course, you know, I've told the story a lot about Jaron getting Jaron in there. Um, because, you know, I always, you know, when you're building a video or for me, when you're building a video, like I'm kind of looking at like the Avengers, you know, or like a comic book, you know, team, like we've got the, you know, the big Hulk or the thing, you know, you've got that guy and then you've got sort of the, the all American the leader guy and you've got kind of the outcast guy. So you're sort of building, a, you know, a menagerie of all these different personalities. And so I wanted kind of the, the sort of, stunt hard rock guy you know the gritty uh no t-shirt long hair guy and i envisioned probably so i envisioned like carlos pianowski because he was real close to fp good friend of ours good friend of joe's um but carlos i think wasn't available you know he lives in brazil um and i don't know what his health was at the time i just don't recall um but jaron is another guy who fits that bill and someone who i knew well from the competition circuit um, and someone who I've always thought is, I always thought it was a really great skater, but you know, there was, a, it would happen a lot where there was this divide between the way people perceived competition skaters and the way people perceived street skaters. So I always thought it was interesting when you could kind of break down those boundaries. And so I thought it'd be a neat, um, exercise to bring Jaron off of the ASA pro street course and into the, uh, one of these street videos. And I, uh, you know, he got some flack for it, uh, I think partially because people didn't quite know what to make of Jaron because they thought of him, you know, as a two-time X Games gold medalist. Um, here he was skating, you know, with the FP crew and skating in the Joe Navron video. It didn't quite, it was sort of, there was some disconnect for people. And because, you know, we took out, you know, the, the plywood uh, boards to different spots. And so we, we would, and the, we turned, like we kind of created these crazy scenarios for Jaron and he always did them, which was nuts. Um, but again, it gave people an opportunity to like, oh, you know, park skater has to bring, ramps to street spots or whatever um but yeah i you know i'm proud of the video i'm proud of jaron's section i think that I, I i liked the way the whole thing came out i think it was really cool and it was fun to do with joe no it was like super cool i watched it the other day uh it was like quite some times that i haven't like uh seen it and so first thing first like the thing about higher power i i said it also to joe I, for Fisher Pro Wedding 2, it's my favorite video. Oh, really? Like, yeah, that one. And cue the thought, like, man, those videos are amazing. And then, like, when I watch Brian Shima, Fast Forward, the yeah. end of uh, Higher cool. Power, yeah. that was super cool. And, and also, like, the thing that you just said about Jaren Grubb was yeah. the feeling that, like, we here in Italy had. Like, for, we had the same thing with Aaron Feinberg. Like, when I was a kid, I told you the other time, like I was, uh, I started skating in 2000. Uh, for yeah. some reason, I felt 
Aaron Feinberg like super inspirational. So I was like, yeah. oh man, Aaron Feinberg is the best. And my friend, they were like, oh man, he's just like, uh, he skates only in the skate park. He's like yeah. one of those competition guys. Yeah. And then like Brain Fear Gorn came out yeah. with that like uh, CKS uh, uh, section of, of him. And uh, as well as what happened to Jaren Grubb, like uh, yeah, right. watching him like ripping the streets, doing like even technical stuff like 360 Soul or like, it, it was like uh, quite like uh, a surprise for me. So. Yeah, I mean, I think the wall cast fits uh, fits well in that uh, in that video. Cool, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, one other note that I'll add about the uh, about the um, higher power about the future rollerblading video um, is Joe. When he made that, he's like, he he told me he's like, uh, what do you want to call it? Like, he let me name the video. Uh, and it didn't have anything to do with the video. I just want to come up with like a cool name. And so this was before we were talking about doing is before we were talking about doing what you believe in. But, you know, I've always been fascinated about like the things that people care about and the things that are people are passionate about. And especially, you know, I've always kind of taken sometimes a kind of a contrarian position just to agitate people and be provocative. Uh, but so a lot of that was going on. So, you know, the cover has like this thing with Jesus, like, with, you know, the drugs and the skating and the alcohol inside of it. Um, and so I called it higher power. Uh, but so then when we decided to make what you believe in, I was like, oh man, higher power would have been, I wish I would have kept that title. Cause that's what I want to call this video. But then we came up with what you believe in. So it all worked out. Awesome. And like uh, video wise, like, um, uh, again, Peter uh, Todd was like, as I said earlier, like uh, one of my favorite video. How did you end up working uh, with USD, skating with USD? And like, were you involved into develop of uh, that amazing uh, piece of history? Yeah, a little bit, um, you know, because I knew I, I was close with uh, Matthias and Powerslide and um, Shane Coburn kind of took on the USD project, which before it was USD, it was upside down, um, which is what they were doing kind of on their own and, Germany and there was like this blue skate uh, but they had bigger visions for it and Shane Coburn who you know who did medium and mind game um, but who I worked with at Tribe very closely uh, so he was working on USD while we were at Tribe uh, and so you know we had a lot of discussions about what was going on there and you know I helped with some of the early logos and um, I helped Shane you know I helped Shane with universal uh, frame system um, but it wasn't until later that they approached me about actually skating for the team. Um, you know, and I'd skated for Rosas for a long time. So I think at the beginning, it wasn't really an option. Um, and there'll be a lot about this history that I'm not going to recall right. I'm just sort of gra grasping at kind of little kernels floating around in my mind that, that I can vaguely uh, remember. But, you know, Senate, we kind of always thought about maybe doing a skate you know we did a liner we did frames we did wheels but we never quite did the whole skate um mostly because of our relationship with roses um because we were selling oem wheels to roses that were going on their skates and that was good business for us and we had a good relationship with roses obviously i skate with roses um they were you know they were a good partner for us with senate um so we were real careful about not um not ruining that relationship or not you know offending our, our good partner um but something happened and i don't even remember what it was maybe it had something to do with ufs 
um, but for some reason, I think that the relationship did kind of split between Senate and Roses. Um, and, or maybe it wasn't possible for me to skate for Roses anymore because of something we were doing with Senate. For whatever the reason, I, it, it, I wasn't with, it, there was an opportunity where I wasn't with Roses anymore. And so that opened up the opportunity to skate with uh, USD. Um, but which by then, you know, I had already transitioned from being more of a, uh, you know, I wasn't one of the best skaters by any means at that time anymore. You had Petty and uh, Latimer and Feinberg and all those guys and Julio. Um, I think that I was put on more as a, a ceremonial spot, you know, as a figurehead, um, someone who still had some influence and kind of a tie to the, the legacy of rollerblading. I mean, obviously I was still skating, but, you know, not at the same level. Awesome. And like, what about the video? Like, uh, uh, John, uh, when we talk with John, Avron, like, uh, we, uh, were you guys like uh, known that, that like you were making history, like shooting that video? Yeah. You'd have to ask Joe about that. I, I didn't have very much to do with coup d'etat. I mean, that's, that's Joe. Um, you know, for me, kind of that era, the video that I, I can remember better because I, I was more a part of it was, uh, um, It was a video called One Love, I think. Um, we traveled around. It was basically the USD team. Um, I think it was by an Australian filmmaker. And so some, some of the Australian skaters were there too. Uh, but that, I think that was the USD era also. That's why I remember it and skating with John. And, um, but yeah, as far as coup d'etat, I don't, I don't really have that much to add. You know, I remember there was one point I shot a section for night of the string for, uh, Brian Smith, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I did some gaps in there, uh, and some, you know, I, I tried to do, I had a couple of stunts, like I jumped off of a, the top of a, what do we call that? A shipping container, uh, into a little bank. Um, but after that, Josh said something like, he, he's like, Oh damn. He's like, I'm going to have to step it up now. He's like, you know, and I think he was filming for a coup d'etat at that time. Uh, so, I'm probably overstating my influence a little bit there, but it, that is a little germ of a story that I remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. Josh Perry, he says, like, we knew the video was going to be fire. So, yeah. yeah. They all yeah. knew. And, no, like, it's a classic. It was great. Man, that was amazing. And, like, talking about competition, like, lately I've seen on YouTube that, like, there are people uploading um, videos of, like, all of those ASA Pro Tour stops. Like, how did you get involved with uh, with them? And like, uh, uh, again, like, as I haven't like been part of that period, like, which were the differences between like ASA Pro Tour, the Nice, and the and the X Games? Well, so the, to answer your first question, the way I got involved was obviously as a skater. I mean, I had been involved with all those things from the beginning. Helped, kind of helped create those things. You know, worked on the competition committee helped come up with the judging systems and the competition formats and all those things. And I also competed. Um, so then when I was done competing, it was a fairly easy transition to kind of the broadcast booth or emceeing for the events. And for most of those events, I would actually do both of those things. I would do the live call on site. So while they're skating live, I would say, you know, Oh, here comes the monster, Jaron Grove dropping in, you know, and all that stuff. So I'm doing that for the live audience at the venue and then afterwards after the whole comp competition's been taped and uh is over then we would go and do the tv broadcast which would always be taped after the event 
So we'd have to pretend to be excited by what we're seeing for the first time because we already knew what was going to happen. Although that wasn't very hard. I mean, because it was fun to watch this game. You don't remember every detail. And so, but you definitely had to like kind of uh, amp up the energy a little bit, as they would say. Um, as far as the differences between them, yeah, there were differences. I mean, obviously X Games was the big event. So that felt like a much, uh, a, a much bigger event. Um, ASA and NIST started out as the same competition series and they split up. Um, they were similar events. NIST probably took on more of a uh, hard line, you know, kind of street, urban attitude. I don't know, ASA was probably a little more, uh, I don't know, a little more glossy, you know, a little more buttoned up. Um, but they both, you know, they both provided opportunities for skaters to um, make money and for skating to get on TV and get exposure, so. True. True. There's like some uh, fun fact from John Avron. He says like, uh, Arlo got me a job at ASA and Fox Sports, and then I was fired within two months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> He'll have to tell you a story about why he was fired. And then like, there's also like a, a funnier one. He was says he like, um, yeah, he says like, uh, that's, that's another one I'd say, I would say like, he says like, Arlo got me a job with Craig Carroll, oh, yeah. who made like the Ox video, who fired yeah. me on the first day while That's making right. Kudetat. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not even going to say why, because I think I remember why he said he got fired, but I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to put that out there. Because I don't, I'm not sure if it's right, and I, I, I'm not even sure if it's nice. But yeah, I kept trying to get Joe opportunities, and he kept, he says, and Sessa ripped, ripped a mic out of his hands. That was probably at the ASA Awards. So every year at the end of the season, there'd be an ASA awards banquet, you know, um, and skaters would get dressed up. And it was like, you know, it was like a, an awards event, like the Oscars or something, but poor skating. So, wow. um, but a lot of times these events, you know, the finals events would be in Vegas. And so the awards ceremony would be like at a, you know, big venue, like a, some kind of banquet hall or a bar or something. Uh, but they'd have tables, you know, and uh, a stage and like a podium and they'd have, you know, video display showing highlights from the season and all that stuff. And so it's really cool. Um, and one year, basically the FP crew, but Joe and uh, Josh and Jeff Frederick um, and Aaron, but all these guys, they were like drinking a lot at this event. And so when they would get up on stage, because, you know, like Aaron's winning events and like Joe and Jeff would go up with them and stuff. But so they get up on stage and they're just being kind of like, belligerent like you know like assholes kind of like making a scene and being obnoxious um and it just so happened that that year i got honored with like a a lifetime achievement award or something in skating um, which is silly because it's probably like you know like my 20s <laughs> or maybe my early 30s but you know it's a young sport and so whatever you gotta you gotta fill up an award show um but so I, you know, I got called up to the stage and I get to make the, you know, and as you know, I'm, I'm not uh, one who's uh, has a hard time speaking. So, you know, I'm, I get up there to make my, you know, to make my acceptance speech or whatever um, to give my thoughts. But I had to improvise and, you know, comment on the behavior of, of Jeff Frederick and, and Joe and what these guys were doing. Um, I think they felt like I kind of like betrayed them because I was like calling them out. But you know, I just point out the difference between being, because I've made a career off of being sort of iconoclastic and being rebellious and anti-authority and stuff like that. But there's a difference 
and this is probably also a good time, you know, with the background of what's going on in America, although this was on a much smaller, much more trivial scale. But I said, you know, there's a difference between being a rebel and a provocateur and being an asshole. You know, um, if you're if you're just trying to piss people off or bum people out, I mean, but with your, there's no motivation or there's no like vision, you know, uh, uh, underneath it guiding it, then you're just kind of being a jerk. Um, so yeah, so that was the story of the of the banquet, and of course, you know, Joe, my the people that I identified with most with at the banquet are Joe and Jeff and Josh. Those those are my people. Those are my friends, but. In that moment, I had to kind of like make the distinction between kind of the different kinds of behavior, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't agree with the way that they were acting. And by the okay. way, Macho Man Randy Savage, who you might not know, but who's a big American wrestler. Um, oh yeah, of course, I, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, I know Macho Man. <laughs> so he he was a spokesperson for Slim Jim, and Slim Jim was a big sponsor of ASA. So Macho Man and his wife were there at that event. They were sitting right next to me at the table right next no to me. Way. Yeah. And so like after the thing, he's like, you know, he's like, right on brother, you know, something <laughs> like that. So it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And like talking about this competition, like I've probably seen them all like on YouTube again, there's this guy who uploading all of those uh, amazing like competition. The level of skating was pretty cool. But like, in my opinion, like the, um, on your competition, on the hoedown, the level of skating was like way up there. Like, I mean, um, I remember like the on the Vuju 16 video, like the, the tricks that like Richard Johnson did or Aaron Feinberg did, or like again, like the year after year, like Brian Shima and all that. Like, how did you end up like making that concept on, on, on your skate park? And uh, why did you uh, decide to take like uh, the 45 second runs, 60 second runs? aside and like making with the, with the, with the, how can I say it? Like with the, with the plan on, on doing the, the, the competition. Yeah. Um, so as we covered, you know, I, I knew all the other competition formats intimately. I, I helped develop them to a large extent. Um, and, you know, we had a different format for X game for ASA for uh, gravity games. Um, and, so we were constantly like tinkering and trying to come up with the best formats. Um, but with all those events, you know, you basically had to, they were made for TV events. So it was kind of harder to envision a, a pure session style format because for the TV audience, there has to be some structure. You have to know who's skating, when, and what to watch. Uh, for Hoedown, we had, every, it was just a session. We had everybody skating at once. So for, for a TV, from a TV perspective, that would be really hard to pull off. We came up with a great compromise for gravity games. We called it the, uh, it was uh, sort of like a shot clock format. Um, but I, I don't need to go into that. But so, but so I had the luxury with the hoedown since it wasn't a made for TV event. Basically the, the videos were edited after the event like street videos. You just put the, edit the best tricks to music, really. So we could do session style. Um, and the other thing, there were a couple of other things that we had going for it. One is that we put up a big prize purse um, you know, first place was getting like 10 grand or something. So people go out for that. Right. Um, but also because of the format, it encouraged people to go hard, like to try their hardest tricks because, you know, there was no timed run. It didn't matter if you fall. Um, you had whatever it was, your 20 minute session, 
in your heat or whatever it was, your 15-minute session, to just go as hard as you want, try as hard as you want. You get as many attempts, and if you pull it off, then maybe you'll move on. Uh, and the third other innovation that I should point out also is that, you know, one of the complaints a lot at, at the other events, at the X Games and the ASAs, was, you know, skaters would oftentimes they would feel like they weren't judged fairly or they thought maybe that the judges were biased or that the judges weren't qualified or for whatever reason, they always, you could always find an issue with the judging. Um, so at Hoedown, we didn't have judges. The only people who judged were the skaters. So when you skated in a heat with, you know, 15 to 20 other skaters, at the end of your heat, you all come off of the course and you say, who do you think skated best in your own heat? So you, so you're watching everybody else that you're skating with. You see the session going down. You can feel it. You know who's like, you know, who's going off. And so at the end of the event and throughout the night, you know, we keep whittling it down from, you know, you start out with like 60 competitors, then it goes down to like 40, then 20, then 10, and then you're down to just the final five. Dang. And so by the end, you've got five skaters competing and then all the other 55 skaters who are competitors are all watching now, but they're, they, they're all judging. Um, so at the end, you've got this big ballot, you know, everybody turning in the things who, you know, they put down their top five, they put in order, they put down their best trick. And so then we just tally up those, all those results. And that's what it is. And nobody ever complains because they know it's just, you know, their skaters, their friends voted for them, you know, their, their peers. Um, and it, it was a long ruling night. You know, we would often finish after midnight. Um, and by the end, the skaters, you know, they've been skating like 100%, like death-defying stuff, you know, all night. Uh, and then giving everything and saving their hardest stuff for the end. Um, but it, it made for some really magical moments. And it, as, as you know, some great, great footage. I mean, they were incredible events. Man, I bet. I mean, like, um, yeah, I was wanting to ask you, but like, I do believe like this question could be like a tricky and a, like a tough one, which are like, if you have like a, I, I wouldn't say like a top three, but like some memorable moments of the, of the Eisenberg, like a hoedown, like, do you have like any um, remembrance of like tricks or like moment happened during those years of competition? Well, it's funny. You know what? Actually, I'm going to say next question. Uh, only because I just discussed it last night or whenever it was two days ago that it, uh, Justin asked me that. So anybody who wants to know that answer, they can go look up the one blading thing. We'll of try course. Content here. The, the quick answer was it was Shima transferring from a quarter pipe into the vert ring. Yeah. So into the vert ring, right? Right, exactly. But if you yeah. want the whole story, go check out the one uh, uh, interview. Definitely, definitely. We will for sure. And yeah, like the, 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 the whole down was like a, one of the probably most democratic competition yeah. uh, ever done after yeah. like within the IMYTA because everybody uh, w w w were able to, to skate against anybody and like yeah. there were no judges, the public was a judge. So yeah. that was like a, a pretty cool, um, a pretty cool concept. Yeah. And like talking about like uh, skating uh, nowadays, um, how did you uh, see it? Like, are you following it or like, uh, uh, did you ever like, you said the other time that you, go often with, with your daughter around skating into the streets and all that like but are you going to like uh, uh watching like skate videos or do you have time to, to see skate videos or yeah of course so you know with with the internet and with instagram it's easy to follow skating and follow skaters so i follow a lot of accounts uh so i yeah i, I see skating daily um and i love it uh i mean i see so much great great content uh you know, to the extent that 
I, I feel very comfortable. Like I don't get to go out skating that often. Uh, and when I do, I enjoy it. Um, but I don't feel like this burden or this pressure to, you know, to be a skater. I mean, I'll always be a rollerblader. That's part of my identity. That's part of my, my soul and my essence. Um, but I don't feel like to be a rollerblader, it means that I have to be out skating all the time. Uh, I love being, I love being an observer. I love watching rollerblading. I get so much satisfaction out of seeing people who are great at it, do it. It, it's so, it looks so great. It's very satisfying. And as someone who was around at the, you know, in the early stages when we were, you know, we couldn't have even imagined what it would evolve into now to be able to watch it and see, you know, the, the dream become a reality, but even more than we could have ever dreamed of, um, is really deeply, immensely gratifying. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing, you know, watching and always, I always, I get embarrassed at this part of the conversation because I feel like I, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce names, but, you know, watching Joe Atkinson, CJ Wellsmore, uh, Eugene Nin, um, uh, Yuto, uh, Goto, whatever. Um, uh, I, I see a bunch. And, and another thing that's cool about it is because it's Instagram. So whereas coming up, you see the skaters that you skate with, or you see the skaters that are in California, that get put in the magazines and the videos. Now I get to follow skaters from all over Europe, from South America, from the African continent, um, from all over the U.S. I'm seeing skating all over the world, and it's sort of the different takes that people have on it, the different styles. Um, it's awesome. I love it. Man, that's great. And I also, well, I'm going to ask you also this question that I asked it to Scott Crawford the other day about, like, the evolution of skating that you mentioned. Like, when you've started skating, uh, did you ever, like, uh, figure out the, the, way that skated, the, the way that skating evolved was going to get that far for I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking about like tricks that Chris Haffey did or Adam Feinberg did. Like when you guys started skating, like, did you ever like envision those tricks? Um, kind of, I mean, you can, there's sort of like a logical progression. It's like, if you, you know, if you can do a half tab into a trick, you can imagine well someone will do a full fakey 360. Or if you can spin into a trick, you can imagine infinitely how much spinning you could go you can imagine an infinite number of combinations. So there's kind of logical trick progression that you, you know, it's fairly intuitive to imagine. I think what's harder to imagine is, you know, it's kind of like the Alex Broskow component. Um, it's like how, how good skating could look and kind of how fluid and effortless, like not just about performing the tricks, um, but just kind of the, just kind of the essence of skating. Um, like when you, when I watch a, a section from Alex, it's not just about what he's doing. What he does is incredible, right? His actual trick vocabulary is insane, and his his proficiency, you know, uh, on rails and, and doing grinds and stuff is sick. Um, but watching him skate from spot to spot, you know, when he does a line, when he's skating down the street, um, I, I'm not sure that. I, although that when I talk about the kind of things you dream of, that's I think one of the things I would have always dreamed of, but could have never really anticipated exactly how it would look. Skating looks when, you know, when certain people do it or in the hands of the right people, it looks really cool and unique. It looks, it doesn't just look like, you know, a, a, like it's derived from other action sports. It doesn't just look like sort of a, a bastardization of skateboarding. There's something really unique about the way people who've, who've really mastered it, uh, make it look true and like we, we like about this topic like 
one of the things that I really um, I do admire it's the fact that like how John John Julio uh, was able to turn like his company into like a role model. Like I, I do believe that like uh, um, his way to manage the company and to build up the, the image of the company was something outstanding. And have you ever thought like have you ever like imagined like um, a blader who was in, in like uh, on the team with you? Roses and USD and all that, like, was able to reach out that level of, uh, of, um, uh, how can I say, like, on the business side. You know, I'm sure that's a fine question, but the fact he brought John actually makes me want to answer something else that follows the conversation we were just having, um, talking about John Julio, and I see that uh, Dave Payne's on here as well. So hopefully, I'll get this video right. But I think John had a profile. Was it VG4? Which one was John's? VG4. VG4, yeah. Um, but so again, you can almost trace back this thing that I'm talking about, sort of this, this sort of unique essence of skating that happens not just during the tricks, but between the tricks. Um, you can almost trace it back to John, what he did in VG4. Because for me, I remember it having a profound impact. Like, because John is a great skater, right, also. But he was in camouflage pants. He had glasses without the lenses in them. And he would like stop and do like a 360 between tricks, like just skating from one trick to the other. He would just stop and spin or he'd do like a weird little uh, wall ride on the way to the next trick. Um, and there was something about the way he was thinking about skating. It wasn't just trick to trick or just get a clip for a video, clip for a video. He was thinking about the entire experience of skating, the whole thing. Um, and that for me was revolutionary. Um, and so, and you know, because of BG's platform and because of obviously we've seen the influence John has had since then, I think for a lot of people that made an impression and that helped to kind of steer the, the evolution of rollerblading. True, totally agree with you. Aaron, it's pretty cool. Like in my opinion, it's pretty cool to see him like uh, uh, running one of the, the most influential company within like uh, the most badass team within Alex Prosto, of course. <laughs> it's great. I mean, John is, he really is, you know, he's the, the commissioner. He's the commissioner of our blading football league, but he is the commissioner of rollerblading. He, it's in his hands, really. Um, and what I'm about to say is ridiculous. I was going to say I can't imagine a better person to task with that responsibility. But the only reason I say that is because we've seen him do it. You know what I mean? It's only no, no, I, I, that we know that he is, he is the best person for it, but he really uh, – you know, rollerblading owes a, a great uh, debt to John Julio. And, and like, for example, like, I totally agree with you, like 100%. And like, another example is the fact that like, uh, right now, uh, um, them is going to drop like a video and all the merchandise, all the income from the merchandise about that video, John is like uh, developing, like he's, he's giving it to it for the, for the Black Lives Matter cause. So, yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool to see that. John and, um, is a special and incredible dude. True, true. Totally agree with you. And like, um, there was like a Miguel. Said My only regret, the only thing that I regret about John is that he bailed out on the Blading Football League because we have a group thread, a group text that we're all in. There's 12 members in the league. And, you know, this actually predated Black Lives Matter, but Jason got offended, Jason Reyna, because uh, Kenan said something about, you know, we need to check our white privilege. Um, and then, Reyna was like, I'm out. He left the thread. Okay, fine. He's offended. The, the last person to leave the group chat was Corey Casey because I made fun of the Chargers because they were leaving San Diego. 
So he was like, I'm out. But he came back eventually. People do come back eventually. Um, but after Rayon left, for some reason, the commissioner left his own leading <laughs> football league. I don't know what's going on with that. So hopefully, hopefully not only will America heal after all this turmoil that we're going through, but maybe hopefully also the blading football league will heal and we'll all be able to come back together. Hey, John is listening. He's here. Who's here? John, John Julio. <laughs> yeah. What's up? Why did he leave? Why did he abandon the league? And then Damn. what about you? What about you now? Yeah, they're all like, here. Uh, Drew's in here. <laughs> Dave. Everybody, everybody here. Drew, Dave, Josh, Miguel, everybody. Yeah. Actually, I guess the first problem is we better make sure the football, the NFL league actually even comes back. Love you, John. Okay, he's got it. Okay. <laughs> we see unity in the community. We are healing rollerblading. Awesome. And like, what about you today? Like, what are you doing today, like work-wise and like uh, um, artistic-wise? I see the paintings in the back. They are pretty cool. And let me tell you this, like the graphic that you've done with the, with the, with the Frank Gaucher and all that, they were like super amazing. But the paintings on the back, they're pretty cool. Old ghost shirt. Um, yeah, and you see some of the shirts here? Yeah. Right. Because you know, you know I do drug receipts? I've seen like... On your bio, on your Instagram, like there's also a, a, the account, right? Yeah, so I have an Instagram account called Drug Receipts and just started, you know, like when I would go out like, and we'd go to dinner and they bring the receipt and you sign the receipt and I would like doodle on it, you know? Um, little drugs. Uh, but so then I would doodle on the, re right? This is a receipt, but then I just do a drawing on it. Damn. Um, and usually I leave them for the servers, but since we've and whatever so i leave them for the servers and then we i made an account someone told me a friend i was like they're like post those i'm like yeah i should post those so i started account drug receipts and i just you know whenever i, I leave a doodle I, i post them um but then that has you know as will happen that has that concept has just kept expanding and so now i make some t-shirts and stuff uh but instead of just making like large runs of t-shirts, it's all art. So I'll, I go to the thrift store and I buy shirts that already have graphics on them. You can see in the background, the yellow, this already had a graphic. Mm -hmm. And then I just print, I, I bleach and I dye the shirts and then I print my graphic on top of it. So it's sort of the same concept of receipts where I, I like take something that already exists and I'm just sort of appropriating it or co-opting it for my art. And then the t-shirts the are kind of like a, another version of that. This one's easier to tell because that's like a Pokemon shirt, right? But got the little drug guy on it saying raise heck. Um, so, yeah, so that's my art, and I do a lot of stuff with that. Um, I'll do ghost collabs every once in a while. We did one with Intuition for the Arbonites um, shirt recently. Uh, and I'll, I'll do prints of the, the drug receipt stuff. Um, but that, those are all, like, you know, personal projects. That's sort of – I always like to have kind of personal stuff that I'm doing just to keep kind of creative uh, edge sharp. Uh, but professionally, I work with my dad. I moved back to Texas about five or six years ago. Um, to my dad has a creative agency here. We do branding and marketing. Um, and I was doing the same thing out in California. After skating, I got into kind of mainstream marketing and design. Uh, I worked with Randy Spicer at a couple of companies. We worked at Paul Frank. Then he, all the jobs I got after skating, basically, I got through Randy. So Randy was to me like I was to Joe. But unlike Joe, I didn't keep getting fired from all these things. I, you know, I would get in, I, I would excel and get promoted and all this stuff. But so then, so I made a good career doing all that in California. 
And after some years doing that, my dad, who's in the same business, but back in Texas, asked me if I'd ever be interested in getting in the family business, as long as we're doing the same thing and coming back home. And so we, we worked that out. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so now I work with my dad back here at, at our agency, Eisenberg. Oh. Awesome. Awesome. So Arlo, I think uh, that's pretty much it, man. I, cool. I mean, like I'm, I'm speechless. Thank you so much for, for this opportunity. And uh... Dude, Josh and Joe cannot wait to do their podcast because like <laughs> I just come on here and like burn and light them up. And they're like, I know that they just cannot wait to like just, you know, throw flames at me on their own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I'm I'm so hyped also on, on those on those podcasts. On I'm excited. Podcasts. You know, there's so much content coming out. Like I said, you know, I've been in the, just the last few days. I feel like I've, I've been filling up so much uh, content <laughs> just talking. Um, but you know, there, you've talked to so many people. One is talking to a lot of people. There's Jump Street. There's so many things with a lot of content out there. And I, you know, I'm trying to cons be a consumer of it and I watch it. Um, but it's hard to get to a lot of it. But every time Josh has an interview, I watch them and I watch them from beginning to end. He's one of these guys that has a captivating personality and I like listening to him talk. And last True. time you and I spoke, Josh and Joe did sort of just like a spontaneous little Instagram thing. They got up and started talking about it. But I, you know, I love watching those guys. And it's, I always was a big fan of FP. They were my friends. I loved hanging out with them. But I always liked their energy. There was something raw and kind of authentic about it and just kind of like, you know, it does, they don't give a fuck. Um, and so I am excited about their podcast, you know, the, uh, Joe, Josh, and Richard. I think it's called Trouble in Mind. But yeah, I'm really excited to see what they do. I, I'm not excited to, to see them like kind of like try to take the piss out of me and, you know, embarrass <laughs> me. But as far as the rest of the content, I, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, so am I. I'm super excited about it. So Arlo, thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys, for being here, for, for posting comments and all that. Thank you for the love. I'm looking forward to see you soon, uh, uh, to see you maybe at the Blading Cup this year, or I don't hopefully, know, maybe yeah, one day in we'll, Texas. We'll, yeah. We'll be, we'll be super good. It will be an honor for me. And yeah, thank you again for the, the second you. part. It was amazing, thank man. Thank you for everything you're doing. No, thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day, boss. Bye, you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blading Chats.